Good morning, everyone. I hope you all had a tremendous Thanksgiving. Everybody get enough to eat, and are you over, what, what do we call it, the tryptophan effect or something like that? You eat all that turkey, and then you take a four-day nap or something along those lines? Isn't that, isn't that what makes Thanksgiving, though, such a great holiday? You know, one of the things I personally, I say this to Evie all the time, I struggle with with, thank, with Christmas sometimes, and don't get me wrong, I love Christmas. Don't tell on me here, okay? I love Christmas. But I sit there and go, sometimes there's a sense of unlimited obligation. The gospel sensibilities in me tend to fight against that an awful lot. Thanksgiving, though, eat a big meal, spend time with family, take a nap and watch football. I think my selfish side really takes over with that. I kind of like that particular holiday. So I, I hope you all, we had a great holiday. We enjoyed our time with family. I hope you all did. It's great to be together. I uh, appreciate Carl's Advent actually begins next Lord's Day as the first Sunday of Advent, but we're kind of getting in the spirit as we focus on that sense of anticipation and expectation for the coming of Christ. And what Advent really focuses on is the time between Jesus' first coming and second coming, where I hope that wherever we are in life, and as you look out and you see things in your own life, you see things in the world, that we have a sense, how does the Bible end? It ends with a cry of Advent, come Lord Jesus. And I hope that's the cry of our hearts. And while we wait, while we anticipate, while we long for that consummation and completion of God's kingdom and the return of Jesus. We worship him, we give thanks, we focus on him. Uh, He must increase, we must decrease. Let's ask him to illumine our hearts, shape our minds as we come before his word now. Would you pray with me? Father, we come before you dependent and asking that you would open the eyes of our hearts, that we would see your glory, learn of Jesus, behold him, and worship and adore him. Shape us and conform us, Father, to Jesus through your word and through your spirit. We pray for understanding. We pray for application. In Jesus' name, amen. If you would turn in your Bibles, the words are also going to be on the board. They're in your bulletins. And if you are able, please stand as we are continuing our study. This will be our last sermon for a while on the Gospel of Mark. Beginning next week, we'll dive into an Advent series. uh, And then after... Christmas will return to Mark, but we're looking at, if you remember, Jesus has just entered the city of Jerusalem. We've had his triumphal entry. Now we're on the next day of Passion Week, and we see Jesus in these accounts beginning at verse 12 of Mark chapter 11. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry, and seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. 
And Jesus answered them, have faith in God. Truly, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive, if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also, who is in heaven, may forgive you your trespasses. And they came again to Jerusalem. And as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him. And they said to him, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why then did you not believe him? But shall we say from man? They were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We do not know. And Jesus said to them, Well, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. It is completely true and it is given because God loves us. Please be seated. Well, we're going through the back half, the second half, chapters 9 through 16 of Mark's gospel. And if you remember, I said there's an operating question. This is kind of a key interpretive question that you want to take into every text as we look at the various accounts, the various narratives of this back half of Mark's gospel. And that is, what did Jesus come to do? If the first half of the gospel was all about who is Jesus, and it reveals his healing, his personality, how he treated people, his relationships. The second half is, what did this king come to accomplish? What was his purpose, his agenda? And we've been saying and we've been seeing that Jesus came in order to enter Jerusalem. His destination, if you would, was the city of Jerusalem. And his destiny was that he was going to be handed over. He was going to be delivered to the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders of the law in order that he would be mocked and flogged and spat upon, rejected and killed. And that three days he would rise again. So Jerusalem was the destination and death and resurrection was his destiny. And last Sunday we saw Jesus arrive in Jerusalem as true royalty, coming in weakness, coming in humility, ending the day at the temple. When evening came, verse 11 said, this is where we left off, it said that he was in the temple and he was looking around at everything. He was taking everything in the temple in. And then he left and he went with his disciples, went with the twelve out to the village of Bethany where he spent the night. And now we're told it's the following day, so it's the next day of Passion Week. And Jesus continues to exercise his authority. As we saw last week, the theme of this Passion passage is the exercise of Jesus's authority. And we see here that there are two ways, two themes that we see in Jesus's kingly ministry, if I can put it that way, in his exercise of authority. One, we see his authority on display, the display of Jesus's authority. And we see what direction, what purpose it went, the purpose of Jesus's authority. So his display or demonstration of his authority and to what end, to what purpose. In the passage we're looking at this morning, we have another example of a particular literary device 
that Mark uses, a technique that he uses. It's a device or a technique that commentators call either bracketing or sandwiching. Commentators, guys like James Edwards, David Garland, have written a lot on this, and they talk about how Mark tends to sandwich things. So they give the example back in Mark chapter 3. If you remember way back in Mark chapter 3, we had first, the first part of the sandwich was verses 20 through 21. Jesus' family wants to take hold of him in order to seize him. It's that part of the story. Then it's followed by kind of the meat of the sandwich. Remember I said this is a bracket. The meat of the sandwich were the scribes, elders, teachers of the law. They were making the claim that what Jesus was doing, his, mirac- his miracles and whatnot, was that he was possessed by Beelzebub. He was doing it not on his father's authority, but on the authority of the enemy, the evil one, Beelzebub. Followed by the back half of the sandwich, once again, Jesus' family comes out And Jesus basically reinterprets family, saying, who is my family? Are they my mother, my brothers, my sister? He says, whoever does the will of God. They are my mother and my brother and my sisters. And here in Mark 11, we have again, you've got this sandwiching where you have, as they enter Jerusalem, they're coming in the next day of Passion Week, you've got the story of the cursing of the fig tree. And that, along with its interpretation that's given, serves as a bracket being sandwiched by the action in the temple. And commentators point out that we need to interpret what Jesus does in displaying his authority in the temple in light of the judgment of the fig tree. In other words, as we'll see, the point of the fig tree is not Jesus hates fig trees. He's not showing irrational anger or something here. The point is for us to interpret exactly what is going on in the temple. In other words, this is how Jesus is displaying his authority. So let's take a look at Jesus' action in the temple. Look with me at the text. Take a look down at verse 15. And starting with the verse 15, they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, is it not written? So he turns back to the Old Testament. My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished. And that word astonished means they were stupefied. They were baffled at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. Now, how exactly does Jesus demonstrate or display his authority? Now, I know we are, we're using iPads, or we're using our phones, or we're looking at the bulletins, and but if you actually have the old-fashioned Bible, you know the one that comes on paper? And you happen to look at it. I know my ESV that I use, you look at it. And between every narrative, they have kind of a subtitle, which, by the way, the subtitles are not part of the inspired word of God. Okay, they're there to help you. and stuff. But the subtitle of this particular one, if you read it, at least my ESV reads this one, says the cleansing of the temple. And it kind of gives the idea or the impression that Jesus arrives at the temple. Okay, the next day of Passion Week, he comes and he goes, people are buying and selling. They can't do that. I'm anti-economics. I don't like capitalism. 
I'm opposed to... Kind of gives the impression that he cleanses the temple, that he's trying to reform the temple. Now, is that what's going on? Is Jesus truly trying to reform the temple? Or is he about something altogether different? Let me try to illustrate it this way, if I can. You all know, you've known me a long time, I'm a huge football fan, right? And many of you probably know the team that I root for. And it's been a depressing year, pray for me. For my team is the New York Giants. And if you've been following, see, I see Jim Hawkins shaking his head. I've been doing that a lot this year. We're 2-9. and nine. It's been a terrible year. I've shifted to college football, where my Oklahoma Sooners have a chance to go to the playoff. Okay, college football's been great. Pro football, it's a disaster. And, of course, I approach sports much like I approach everything. I think it's occupational hazard. I read, I research, I study. So what do I do? I'm going, how are the Giants going to improve their team? And I read the papers, and I listen, and I try. And there's a debate going on in New York that basically goes one of two ways. You can keep the general manager and the coach and basically try to plug in a few holes, and I call that the reform option. You're trying to reform the team. Or you can basically overhaul the whole system. Fire the GM, fire the coach, get rid of them, overhaul the whole thing, and start over. You can ask Bill Kelly and myself after the service which one we, we want in terms of that. We'll give you our opinion later. But I want you to take a look at something. Look at the situation here. Yes, there is much corruption going on in the temple life. Historians and commentators say that the high priestly families, they derived much of their wealth from their control of the fiscal affairs of the temple. They controlled the coffers, if you will, the finances of it. But is that Jesus's main concern? Is he coming in and going, you know what, I really want to redistribute the wealth. I don't want the high priests to have it all. Or does he want to overhaul the whole system? It's very interesting because a Jewish scholar by the name of Jacob Neusner explains what is going on very well. He says the tables were set up. These are the tables Jesus overturned. So you have to use some imagination and visualize this a little bit. The tables were set up to receive the annual half-shekel tax that was required of every Jewish male and that funded the daily sacrifices in the temple for the atonement of sin. Neusner writes, Jesus' overturning the tables of the money changers will have provoked astonishment. Notice the crowds. They were baffled. They were stupefied. They were astonished. Because it will have called into question the very simple fact that the daily whole offering affected atonement and brought about forgiveness of sin. So accordingly, only someone who rejected the Torahs, the law's explicit teaching concerning the daily whole offering, could have overturned the tables. Or, as Neusner suggests, someone who has in mind setting up a different table and for a different purpose. David Garland, who comments on this, he says, Jesus is not reforming the temple, but he's acting as a prophet. He is coming as the prophet that Moses said that there will be a prophet that's raised up in the last days. And what he is doing is he is graphically and dramatically acting out God's rejection of and judgment of the temple. 
As Garland says, the temple's glory days are coming to an end. He's not just trying to plug a few holes in, make a few changes, and go, you know what? This system of atonement, this system works, let's keep going. He's overturning the whole system in order to fulfill it in himself. And if you look at how Jesus goes about doing it, what does he do? He turns to the Old Testament. He alludes to and he quotes, he uses two Old Testament texts to make his point. First, Isaiah 56.7. In Isaiah 56.7, we read, These I will bring to my holy mountain. What was on the holy mountain? The temple, the house of the Lord. And make them in my house of prayer, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the peoples. Notice in the Old Testament, as Garland goes on to say, the house of God, the temple, was never meant to be a national shrine for Israel. That even Isaiah's vision, when he is looking at what salvation will be, a house of prayer, the vision for salvation was for all the peoples, all the nations. And Jesus is saying, I am fulfilling the story of Israel now. My house shall be a house of people, not just for one tribe, not just for one tongue, not just for one language, but it will be a house of prayer for all peoples. And then Jesus goes on to quote from Jeremiah chapter 7. And listen to what he says in Jeremiah chapter 7, beginning at verse 1. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, stand in the gate, the entrance of the Lord's house. And proclaim there this word and say, Hear the word of the Lord, all you men of Judah, who enter these gates to worship the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Amend your ways and your deeds, and I will let you dwell in this place. Do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. And then after highlighting some of their deeds that needed amending, the way they treated people, the second table of the law, if you would. They weren't loving their neighbor, the fatherless, the orphan, the widow, as themselves. We read down in verse 11, has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord." Now, Jesus is saying, you've made my house. You've made this temple. You've made this a den of robbers. What does he mean by a den of robbers? Well, David Garland comments and goes on to say, he says, robbers has nothing to do with trade or economics in the temple. Instead, it denounces the false security that the sacrificial cult breeds. In other words, the robbers are not swindlers, but bandits. And they do not do their robbing in their den. The den is the place where robbers retreat after having committed their crimes. It is their hideout, a place of security and refuge. Jeremiah is saying, you are going out and you are committing grave injustices. You are not bearing witness. You are not reflecting rightly the glory of the Lord. You are not loving your neighbor as yourself. You're not bringing in the foreigner or the eunuch and letting them attach themselves to the name of the Lord. And then you're coming into the temple. You go out and you commit your crimes, and then you hide behind the false security, the false refuge. You make the temple a den, 
a hiding place, a cave of robbers. Do you hear what he is saying? Jesus' judgment on the temple, his demonstration of his kingly authority, is not about doing business or trade in the temple. But again, as Garland points out, he is indirectly attacking them for allowing the temple to degenerate into a so-called deceptive, safe hiding place where people think that they can find forgiveness and fellowship with God no matter how they act on the outside. Listen carefully, because Jesus is coming, exercising his kingly authority. These are stern words. And what he's doing is he's going after anything we use as a refuge or a false security other than himself. The den of robbers for the men of Judah that Jeremiah indicted them for was using the temple as a place of false security. Now Jesus is coming in and he is overhaul. He's not patching up. He's not putting spackle on a few holes in the walls of the structure. He is overhauling the whole system. That's the point when we get to the cursing of the fig tree and Jesus' interpretation after that, when he says, if you say by faith, move, he doesn't say any mountain, by the way. If he says, if you say to this mountain, the mountain of the Lord, the temple mount, be thrown into the ocean, because that's exactly what he's doing. He is overhauling the whole thing. And a very interesting parallel that I'll point out, and then we'll move on to the next point. In Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 11, the word of the Lord says, Behold, I myself have seen it. So he's prophesying through Jeremiah, and he says, Behold, I myself have seen what goes on in the temple. And if you remember, back in Mark 11, 11, where we're looking, the text where we just picked out, verse 11, when they ended that first night, before going out to Bethany, what the text said, Jesus was in the temple taking it all in, looking at everything around. In other words, this parallel, behold, I myself have seen it. He's seen what's going on, and now he's announcing judgment on it. He's displaying his authority. He's Lord of the temple. And why is he Lord of the temple? Because of the purpose of Jesus' authority, the true purpose of the temple, that which he is coming to fulfill. And of course, this is the point, as I said earlier, of the whole cursing of the fig tree. If you look with me down in verse 12, on the following day when they came from Bethany, Jesus was hungry and seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. So he's looking to see if he find figs, if he can find fruit. In other words, he's looking to see if the fig tree was fulfilling its purpose, was doing what it was built or created to do. And when he came, he found nothing but leaves for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And then verse 20, as they passed by, remember this is the back end of the sandwich. Picture the sandwich. We've had now the temple. Now he goes verse 20. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, have faith in God. Truly, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. See, why is Jesus cursing a fig tree that is not even in season? In verse 13, the word that is used for season, 
It's actually very important. It's the Greek word kairos. You need to understand there are two Greek words for time. One is kairos and one is chronos. Chronos is a moment in time. It is now 10 minutes to 11. That's the chronos. Kairos is a period of time. It's an order. It's an age. It's an epoch of time. It's the same word kairos that is used back in the beginning of the gospel, Mark chapter 1. After Jesus' baptism, when it says, after John the Baptist was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming, preaching, declaring the gospel of God and saying. So he's proclaiming the gospel and saying, so here's the content of the gospel. The time is fulfilled, and that word for time is kairos. The kairos is here. doesn't just mean the chronos is here. The kairos is here. The new order. Jesus' messianic reign the rule has invaded earth. Heaven has come down to earth. The time is at hand. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And the word for time is the same word that's used here. Commentators correctly point out Jesus is not demonstrating his authority by referring to some botanical term for growing season. But the barren fig tree represents the barrenness of temple Judaism, of the system that is unprepared to accept Jesus' messianic reign. And the purpose of that is so that the locus of salvation, what the temple was pointing to, the purpose of the temple in the first place, to find atonement, to find forgiveness, to find salvation, to find grace, where heaven and earth meet, now shifts from the temple to Jesus in his death and resurrection so that faith in him now becomes the way to God, not the sacrifice of animals in the temple. And healing, shalom, salvation, atonement, forgiveness are all to be found in Jesus. Remember the purpose of Jesus. That's how we are to read this. What did Jesus come to do. Again, as Garland says, his death creates a new house of prayer for all the peoples. It's a fulfillment, a temple not made with hands, which will be without barriers or limitations. And of course, prayer is important. He talks about prayer as the fuel, the energy of the kingdom, and grace the necessity of forgiveness being the DNA of the kingdom. So friends, what are we going to do with all this? What are you going to do with all this? Do you understand the time? Do you understand the kairos? Do you surrender to Jesus' messianic reign? Where are you looking for salvation? And not just salvation at the very end of the age. What are you looking for as your security? Are you going to your own den of robbers? that you have made up, that could be anything, your own cave. You'll hide yourself in family. You'll hide yourself in riches. You'll hide yourself in having lots of friends. You'll hide yourself. What is your den of robbers? Is there any other false security or refuge that you are looking to? Because the way of salvation, the way of significance, the way of healing is in only one name only. It is in Jesus Christ and him alone. Again, as Garland, I, Garland again puts it so beautifully, 
He says Jesus has been taking the place. In other words, he's been fulfilling the temple's functions during his entire earthly ministry. Remember the scene where the friends lowered the man, the paralytic, down through the roof? Forgiveness was found in Jesus, wasn't it? He announced forgiveness for him, not the temple. Jesus healed the leper. He heals the sick. Healing is found in Jesus, not the temple. And Jesus restores persons to society. Jesus replaces, he overturns the tables, not so that there are no tables, but he replaces the tables of the money changers where worshipers had to pay a half-shekel tax for atonement with the Lord's table. A table that is spread far and wide. A table that displays the utter generosity and hospitality of our Lord himself, where he announces that his free offering of his life provides forgiveness of sins. Garland says the pouring out of his blood will replace once and for all the system of animal sacrifice for atonement. His death is where humankind goes for reconciliation to God. What is your security? What is your refuge? What are you bearing witness to in the world today? Do you accept and surrender that the kairos has been fulfilled? Jesus' messianic reign is not completely few. It's already and not yet, but it's been inaugurated. Do you surrender to his grace? Do you surrender to his reign? Do you surrender? The time is at hand. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your authority. We thank you for your authority that is displayed in judgment and in mercy. That the purpose of the temple was so that you would come in and you would announce judgment and then you would take your own medicine. That you would take the medicine of your judgment upon yourself so that all of the promises of God both negative and positive, are yes and amen in Christ. Oh, that we would gaze upon and behold. Oh, that we would leave here with a resolve and a commitment. Oh, that Jesus would increase and increase and increase and increase in our lives. And Jesus, we pray in your name. Amen.